This particular strain of bacteria, what it was doing in humans, is that it was helping to break down lactate. So as a distance runner, of course, it's lactic acid buildup that causes muscle fatigue. And they discovered that basically marathon runners train their gut and develop their gut in a way unintentionally. I mean, you're not like, you know, you're not engineering it yourself. This is mother nature doing you a favor. And their gut adapts to the exercise that they're doing in a way where you have more prominence of bacteria that help you to break down lactate. It's like a friend who's pushing you along in your endurance race. That was Dr. Will Bolsowitz, the gut health doctor and author of Fiber Fueled. And this is his story on the Pacing Racing Podcast. All right, what's happening, everyone? Welcome back and welcome to the first time listeners. My name is Steven Langenhausen. I'm the host of Pacing Racing, the podcast helping you reach optimal health and endurance through learning from the world's brightest health experts and the world's most talented endurance athletes. And joining us today is the Gut Health MD, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, to talk about how athletes can improve their performance through optimizing their gut health. Now, Will is days away from releasing his new book, Fiber Fueled, which outlines a plant-based gut health program. So we got him at a perfect time to pick his brain on optimizing your gut health. Now, this is an important topic for a number of reasons. Now, when you think of it from a performance point of view, endurance athletes eat way more calories than the average person. And not only that, athletes need to resort to some less than optimal foods during our workouts to fuel our bodies. And then when we work out, we put our bodies in these sympathetic fight or flight mode states, which means we leave our parasympathetic, which is our rest and digest state. So in these long workouts, we are continuously neglecting our gut health by shutting our digestive system down and filling it with tons of carbs and electrolytes. Now, from a health point of view, our gut accounts for nearly 70% of our entire immune system, and it plays a vital role in our overall health and longevity. So his book has several hundred science-backed studies showing the plant-based approach can revamp your microbiome, improve your digestive health, which in turn will make you healthier and a better athlete. Now, as Will describes in his book, fiber fuel isn't a quick fix or a diet. It's a lifestyle trajectory that heals. It's an excellent podcast, guys, and the privilege is all mine to be speaking with him. And now... Let's get into it. All right. So, Will, man, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Stephen? Yeah, no, absolutely fantastic. I know it's a little late here for both of us. Uh, we're in the same time zone, but uh, different countries here. And I know both of us just got our young ones into bed. So I, I, <laughs> we're ready to rock and roll, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's that's the dad wife for you, right? Yeah, exactly. No. So, I mean, before we get into this, uh, so you're in South Carolina, I believe, right? So what's the general vibe down there through this whole pandemic we're all facing here today? Uh, you guys keep it up well? You know, we, we are. I think that we in our so we're fortunate in our community that it, we're not as densely populated as many of the other east coast cities so it, it never really hit us like by the time it started to ramp up in new york and we became aware of the threat our city started to really slow down dramatically and that was you know sort of mid march and so for you know basically the last 6 or 7 weeks things have been super slow here in town and it's, it's hard to really know what's going on with the virus. I, I can tell mm-hmm. you that on the medical side of things, because I'm a doctor and I work in the hospital, there's still some cases that are coming in, but it's dropped off. It's tapered off dramatically. 
But, you know, the, the problem is with this whole thing is we just don't know how exactly this is all going to play out because the minute we put our guard down and we stop doing the things that we're currently doing, the virus can start to come back. And, and so it's just sort of a challenge to know what is the right choice. There's no doubt that this, this virus is horrible, right? And the things that it's done, you know, across the entire globe, I mean, it's, it's horrible. But for each one of us, it puts such, such tremendous strain on us that I kind of see it like, look, you really have no choice but to try to find something positive to hold on to. Because if you don't, the thing's just going to drag you down and it doesn't make it any better. And frankly, you know, as you and I are going to talk about in a few moments here, the more that the stress drags you down, the more that it can affect your health because it can alter your gut. And if it alters your gut, it can affect your immune system. And that's not a good thing right now. No, exactly. I'm glad you touched base on that. And, you know, there's lots to get into around the gut health and how that revolves around your immune system. And and so I'm excited to have you on here to discuss some of this. And I mean, you know, I guess before we get into this and get into discussing your book that's dropping in a couple of days here, let's hear a little bit about your background just to get the listeners up to pace here. Sure. So I am a gastroenterologist. Um, that's what I do for a living. I do that full time. So that means I'm a specialist uh, with expertise in, in basically the organs of digestion. So like esophagus, stomach, small intestine, colon, pancreas, liver. I'm, I'm basically the expert when it comes to those things. And that's, that's what I do. And I do that five days a week. I see patients. I do um, colonoscopies and upper endoscopies and things like that. And I am traditionally trained in you know, allopathic medicine or Western medicine. Um, I went to Georgetown for med school in DC. And then I went to Northwestern in Chicago. I was the chief resident um, where I did my internal medicine training. And then I went to the University of North Carolina to do my GI specialty training. And, you know, as I was going through this, the story for me, because I know that your podcast really is focused on the runner's life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I grew up a great athlete. Now, I was, I was never great at endurance. I was one of these guys that's better at sprinting than distance. <laughs> um, but I was a good athlete. I played soccer, I played basketball, and I played tennis in high school. And... As I started to age, you know, I got closer to 30, I noticed that my body was changing and I gained weight. I was up 50 pounds relative to where I was in high school. I um, had high blood pressure. I had anxiety. Um, I honestly, at times, in retrospect, I feel like I was depressed. I had low energy and low self-esteem and You know, it's kind of weird to describe that because I think to outsiders, people who saw what was happening in my life professionally, they would go, but you were accomplishing all your goals. You won the highest award in your residency program. You were the chief resident at one of the top programs in the country. Like, how could you be depressed? How could you not be feeling confident and good about yourself? But I was miserable. I was miserable. When I was 30 years old, I felt like I was 60. And I needed a way out. And, you know, the, 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 the problem is that my medical training hadn't really taught me how to even take care of myself. And, you know, this happened eating the same diet that I was raised on. And so from my perspective, it's like, well, why would this be the problem? I, this was the way I ate as a kid. This is the way that I was taught to eat. And so I tried to exercise my way out of it. And, um, you know, typical sort of guy fashion. I was like, you know, look, if I exercise hard enough, I can eat whatever I want, then it doesn't matter. (laughs) And so I would, and I'm literally not exaggerating when I tell you this, that I would go and lift heavy weights, you know, for usually about 45 minutes. 
And then I would either jump on the treadmill and run a five to a 10 K or I would jump in the pool if it was the summertime and I would swim a hundred laps and I could improve my exercise performance. I could run that 5k or 10k at a pretty decent pace um, or do those laps in the pool and hold up pretty well, but I couldn't lose the weight. I just couldn't do it. It wasn't happening. I still had a gut. I could put muscle underneath the gut, but I couldn't make the fat go away. And things changed for me when I met my wife. Um, so we just started dating at this time. And you know, we would go out to dinner and for me, it was always, is it going to be a ribeye or is it going to be a pork chop? Like, what's it going to be? And I met my wife and she just ate completely radically different than I did. She would, you know, basically eat a plant-based diet. And so when I saw this, I saw, I, what I noticed is that she could eat without restriction and, you know, in complete abundance. Like she just was devouring food and she had complete control over her weight. She didn't have to worry about it. So it opened up my mind to the possibility that maybe this diet that I was raised on wasn't doing me any favors and that as I had aged, this diet was catching up to me and causing health issues. And so I decided to just dabble a little bit and I started with just smoothies instead of going to get fast food for dinner and felt amazing the first time I did it. Um, great, like very light great energy, went to the gym and I smashed a workout an hour later and it, and it brought me back and I kept trying this and I was noticing changes in my body and the fat was melting away. And it just, it really, I was like, wow, I'm getting the results that I've been dying to have and been working so hard for. And now I'm getting them by simply making these small dietary changes. So, <clears throat> you know, you have to understand, like I am a man of science. Like I believe wholeheartedly in evidence-based medicine. Um, in my practice as a doctor, science is my compass. That's what I use on a daily basis to care for my patients. And so I went to the medical literature thinking there's no way there's anything in here because I haven't heard anything about this. And I was shocked when I found that there were literally thousands of studies on nutrition showing us a path to better health. <laughs> and let's go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by hearing this story. And I, I know a lot of people can probably relate to this, right? It's that common saying of, you know, the abs are made in the kitchen, right? And, yep. you know, you said that really well there. And I read in the, in the first chapter of your book there, how time and time again, people are told by their doctors that food doesn't matter, you know, when it comes to like, whatever symptoms they may have that, you know, I even had my gastroenterologist brush off uh, the question when I asked if certain foods would make difference in, you know, all sort of colitis symptoms. And, like, why, why are we seeing that this is happening so much out there? I'm quite curious about that. You know, I think this is a multifactorial problem. Part of it is medical education. The doctor is not actually taught practical nutrition. You know, I mean, so let me put in the perspective for you. I, I'm, I'm 39 years old. I'm, I'm turning 40 in a couple of months here. And so it's not like I'm at the tail end of my career. But medical school for me was almost 20 years ago. And my nutrition training was two weeks, almost 20 years ago. And um, my nutrition training was like, it wasn't even practical nutrition. It wasn't, hey, how to talk to your patient or here's the different types of diets or things of that variety. This was, this was basically just, okay, if the person has this particular vitamin deficiency, what are the 10 symptoms that they could potentially have? And it's like, well, but hold up. I'm never going to see that in my entire career. Why am I memorizing this? 
You know, that was what nutrition was. And that's, that's part of the issue. The other part of the issue is that it is not made a priority by our government or by insurance companies. And so if they don't reimburse doctors to do this, doctors are not going to do it. That's the reality because it takes 10 to 15 minutes to have a good nutrition conversation with your patient. And for me personally, I feel like it's the right thing to do. I feel like how can I have a person come into my office and want results? Let's pretend they have ulcerative colitis. This patient's in my office. They want results. And if I believe that the root of their problem is connected back to diet and lifestyle, not that they've made, made, made poor choices, but just saying that the root of the problem is diet and lifestyle. If I'm ignoring the root of the problem, what kind of a doctor am I? You know, and so for me, I have to do it. I'm compelled to have that conversation. But for many other doctors who are not trained in nutrition, they go, look, I, I don't really know anything about it and I don't really have time for it. So why would I do that? And that's, that's the problem that we have. Yeah, no, it's fascinating to hear that from your perspective. And, and it totally makes a lot of sense, right? Not only do you have the, the medicinal background as from being a doctor, but you also have uh, a lot of studies that you do on your own time as far as nutrition goes, right? And uh, you, you've taken the plant-based approach and you actually just wrote your book and that's coming out within a few days here, which I'm really excited to kind of dive into. And I guess one of the things I wanted to do was first relate this to endurance athletes out there listening in. Uh, I guess before we dive into some of the critical points in your book here, now, one of the things that we discussed before was that how endurance athletes tend to put their gut through a lot of stress with, you know, being in a chronic sympathetic state through all their training and just daily stressors on top of all that, trying to organize their, their trainings around their lifestyle and then eating just way more calories than the average person and constantly consuming those fast acting fuels during those long strenuous type of workouts. So, I mean, I guess it's safe to say that most endurance athletes have some areas to improve on their gut health, right? Even though they might not experience symptoms day to day. Well, I, I think it's a valid point. You know, it, when you think about when, when my body was hurting and I was 50 pounds up, part of the reason why that happened, it wasn't just my diet. It was also my lifestyle. I wasn't sleeping. You know, I was, um, I had erratic hours. I was not exercising and, you know, the same sort of general idea could be applied to endurance athletes in the sense that there's a lifestyle that comes with that. And that lifestyle may not always be completely conducive to gut health. You have to make modifications when you're serious. You know, when you are a serious endurance athlete, you are making modifications to your lifestyle to make your life revolve around this, you know, hobby that you take so seriously. And as a result of that, sometimes it can have an effect on what is sort of condition considered to be optimal in terms of feeding into our gut microbiome and getting it into the best shape possible. But, you know, that being said, what's fascinating about the gut microbiome and, you know, stop me if there's something that you want me to unpack more, but what's fascinating about it is that it's completely adaptable. It is completely adaptable. And that includes it adapts to exercise. And they have, a, a, there's a study actually, Stephen, that I'm really excited to talk to you about that they did not, let me say, this is a mouse model. Okay. It's not a human study, but Many times what we do is we start with a mouse model study and then we'll ultimately expand our investigation to look into this in humans and see where it takes us. But there's a, to give you an example of the way that our gut microbiome is adaptable, in a mouse model study, they, they looked at first marathon runners in humans 
And they discovered that there was one particular bacterial strain that stood out. All right, so they started with humans. They found this bacterial strain in their microbiome that was more prominent among marathon runners compared to people that were not marathon runners. And they transferred this bacterial strain into mice to see what would happen. And when they did this and they put the mice through exercise, comparing mice that received the special strain versus ones that did not, they found that the mice that received the special strain performed 13% better on an exercise wow. task. Now, you can imagine with the, you know, I would imagine that you and many of the people who listen to your podcast, they're not just running casually, they're running for time. Can you imagine a 13% difference? That's a margin that's absurd. Now, I'm not saying that a human would, would have a 13% difference, but what if it was even a 1% or 2% difference just by having this special bacteria? So the <laughs> scientists the scientists were curious. They're like, wow, this bacteria is better than we expected. So they went back to study what does the bacteria do? And this is an example of how our gut microbiome is so intertwined with human life. There's stuff that it does that is completely unexpected. And then you do the study and you discover stuff like this. This particular strain of bacteria, what it was doing in humans is that it was helping to break down lactate. So as a distance runner, of course, it's lactic acid buildup that causes muscle fatigue. And they discovered that basically marathon runners train their gut and develop their gut in a way unintentionally. I mean, you're not like, you know, you're not engineering it yourself. This is mother nature doing you a favor and their gut adapts to the exercise that they're doing in a way where you have more prominence of bacteria that help you to break down lactate. It's like a friend who's pushing you along in your endurance race. Wow. That's incredible to hear because when you think about that, it, it really goes to show the true essence of what your lifestyle is and what you do with your body on a day-to-day -day basis it really plays into how your body adapts, specifically how your microbiome adapts to it. And uh, that's fascinating to hear. And from reading your book, it sounded like microbiome, you know, I, I hear lots about it now, but maybe several years ago, you might not have heard it as, as commonly. And uh, looking prior to 2006, there wasn't nearly as many studies, but Going forward from 2006, it seemed to be a lot more emphasis on the study of microbiome. So we're just sort of scratching the surface on our studies as far as what our microbiome's purpose is and, and where we can really go for it to understand it a little bit more, right? We are in a position where from 2006, when there was a laboratory breakthrough that for the first time allowed us to study the gut microbiome, up to today, you are seeing an escalation of research where it's basically taking off, it's ramping up and it's exploding. And we have gone from knowing very, very little about the connection between these gut microbes. You know, I mean, basically the idea of poop jokes, right? Like when we were kids, we dismiss poop as if it's completely worthless. It's com we, we pretend like it's completely worthless. And now here we are and poop is like the savior of modern healthcare. Like we're, we're actually using poop as medicine in some cases to treat bad infections. We're literally using poop to stop bad infections in some cases. That's not an exaggeration. <laughs> wow. And so, so we have discovered so much. And where we stand today is that we have started to understand what the gut microbiome is capable of and how connected it is 
in human health. So this study discussing, you know, um, the changes in the microbiome of, of an endurance runner is just one example, but your gut is also connected to your immune system. 70% of the immune system literally lives in the gut. You, you cannot separate the gut from the immune system. And that makes it incredibly important these days. Right. Your metabolism, you know, your gut, your gut is uh, completely intertwined with your metabolism, your weight balance, your insulin resistance, um, your cholesterol level. The gut has been connected to the brain in an incredibly powerful way. I mean, basically your, your brain's best friend is the gut. 90% of serotonin, which is the happy hormone. I mean, you know, if I treat a person with uh, uh, sertraline, which is Zoloft in the United States, that's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. That's to treat depression. The way you do it is by boosting serotonin. Well, guess what you're doing? You're mostly boosting serotonin in the gut. 90% of serotonin is in the gut. It affects our mood. It affects our focus, our memory. The, the gut is also um, intertwined with our hormonal balance. And finally, our genetics. You know, our genetic code, we are not just like a, uh, a human entity filled with genetics that predetermine which diseases we're going to get during our lifetime. Instead, we are someone who has effectively a genetic switchboard. And the question is, who is flipping the switch on those genes? And the answer is, we now believe it's the microbiome. And that's incredibly powerful if you think about that. Mm -hmm. Wow. That, no, that is really incredible. And when we look at microbiome, you know, one of the things that are very prevalent now that people talk about on a day-to-day -day basis is probiotics. And you hear that so commonly now. And I wanted to get your opinion, dive in a little bit more, because I think this can benefit, you know, endurance athletes as a, you know, a step one to correcting gut health or optimizing gut health if, if they per se don't have any active symptoms. But, you know, I hear some people swear by them and take them religiously. And I've heard others say uh, that some aren't really beneficial unless you're getting probiotics specific to your gut microbiome. And like, what's your viewpoint on probiotics? Does this come down to if we take any probiotic that your microbiome will adapt to this or should you be supplementing probiotics with, uh, you know, getting a microbiome test, see what you're lacking and then supplement accordingly? Like what's your whole take on that? Um, so, you know, I, I take care of people with digestive issues on a daily basis. It's, you know, it's what I do for a living. And uh, what I'll say is this, I, I have seen some patients who definitely get a benefit from probiotics. The problem is you, you can't predict who that person is going to be. And so if you come into my office and you have a medical issue, so let's just say that because you, you, as you um, mentioned earlier, that you have ulcerative colitis. So there are actually studies to say that ulcerative colitis can be treated with very high doses of probiotics. So, but the problem is that you still have a completely unique gut microbiome. Like there, there's no such thing as a generic ulcerative colitis pattern. I can't diagnose ulcerative colitis based upon your microbiome. That's not, that's not possible yet. You have a unique microbiome. There's no one on the planet with a microbiome quite like yours. And if I give you a probiotic, what I'm giving you is I'm giving you a generic formula. And I'm hoping, I'm crossing my fingers, that when this generic formula descends down into your colon, which is where most of these microbes live, I'm hoping that that formula is going to lead to good chemistry and create magic. And the problem is that you won't know until you try. And the probiotics can be extremely expensive. So like, for example, for ulcerative colitis, it could cost over $100 per month for the amount of probiotics that you need. 
that's a lot of money to spend and not know whether or not you're going to get results. The challenge is that we have been hearing like probiotics so tied into gut health. When people think of gut health, the first question is probiotics, which one? And the, the reason that that is, is marketing. Marketing, people are making money off of probiotics. You know, you can sell a probiotic for 40, 50 or $60 a month and you can't really sell other things that are potentially more effective for that kind of price. So, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, you, you actually brought up a very astute point, which is that what if you could do microbiome testing to see where the deficiencies lie? And I think that's the future. And that's when I'm going to be really excited about probiotics. But that future is not yet here today. Um, because what you need to do is you need studies where they take patients with, for example, ulcerative colitis or with irritable bowel syndrome. And they apply that test. And using that probiotic, they demonstrate that that probiotic is superior to a placebo. You actually have to do the study to prove that. Because if you don't, then we just don't know. And that's the problem is today we don't have enough good studies to know how to apply probiotics in a personalized fashion, which is ultimately what we need. Wow. No, that's fascinating, right? It's amazing to hear. And there's so much talk about probiotics. I'm glad you really touched base on that and got to the root of uh, the discussion points on it. So, so that's incredible. But, you know, one thing we can know for certain here is food and how that can make a difference in our everyday health, right? And optimizing our performances. So you've spoken a lot in your book about this. And you also advocate for this on social media and of course to your patients as well, right? Now you're an advocate for plant-based approach to health. And, you know, I think many can agree with you on this, but can you summarize uh, some of the reasoning here? Like why are we, I guess, first off seeing so many other different types of doctors or influencers or people on social media, I guess, per se, that are preaching about so many other different types of diets, like carnivore diets or keto or something completely different than, you know, the plant-based approach? Well, um, I think that there is a challenge that exists for the layperson in collecting their information from the internet, you know, or from social media. You know, there, there's challenges that exist there. And the reason why is because like literally any person can set up a social media account and claim to be an expert and then try to share information with you. Literally anyone can do that and they can say whatever they want. And in some cases, people say things that are so extreme that they lose their medical license because of it. But most of the time it's not regulated on that level. And so literally anyone can say whatever they want and it doesn't mean that it's good science. It doesn't mean that what they're telling you is actually going to help you or to heal you. And, you know, you have to understand, Stephen, there's, there's 1.1 million doctors in the United States. There's 1.1 million doctors. And so that's a, that's a lot of people. And we shouldn't be surprised that there's going to be at least one person who takes up the position, you know, of every single type of diet. It's going to happen and it's going to continue to happen. And the challenge is that for the layperson, how do we find truth within the noise? How do we find truth within the noise? And that's, that's the hard part. And that's where I really feel for people. And one of the things that I've done, um, separate from my book and put on my website completely for free is I created essentially a, um, guide to clinical research where I, 
I want people to have at least the fundamentals as a layperson so that you can sniff out truth versus just noise. Because at the end of the day, the hard part is this. I So when I was at Northwestern, I was at Northwestern from 2006 to 2010. When I was at Northwestern, I actually got a degree in, in clinical investigation at night. Like I, I would work all day and then I would go to class at night. And I spent two years doing that during my residency. Then at the University of North Carolina, I was on a grant from the National Institute of Health and I spent a year and a half just doing clinical research. I took a break from seeing patients and that's all I did for a year and a half. I did clinical research. So basically between my residency and my, and my fellowship training, I spent eight years formally being trained in how to do research. There's a lot of complexity to this stuff. You know, there's a lot of layers to it. Going, I, I mean, I, I, after eight years of training in it, I don't think that going to medical school by itself is enough to really be an expert in terms of understanding clinical research. You have to do it. You have to live it. You have to study it. You have to continue to work in that direction to become an expert on the topic. So it's even harder for the layperson who's trying to understand this stuff, let alone the person who's a medical doctor and hasn't been formally trained in this stuff. And at the end of the day, you, you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a method that we use. It's, it's, it's um, the scientific method. And basically, the idea is this. This is what you're supposed to do, and this is what I did when I wrote my book. You take a step back, and you look at the entirety of the evidence. You don't get to choose where you stand. You're not supposed to. That's bias. And when you have bias, you're just going to find what you want to find, but that's not the way that this works. You take a step back, you look at the entirety of the evidence, and you let that speak to you. And when there's conflict within the evidence, you have to resolve the conflict. It's not always going to point in the same direction. Many times it does not. Many times you'll find one study that says this and a different study that says that. When that conflict arises, you have to be willing to dig into it and try to understand why that is. And then ultimately, you're going to put these things on the scales of balance. And you're going to say, where is the scale way out? Which direction is this pushing me? So that's the scientific method. And, you know, I, I think that the concern that I have is that, I guess, let me say that in, in talking about gut health and the things that you and I are talking about, the things that I'm talking about in my book, the approach that I took is what I'm describing to you. I, I've looked at the entirety of it. This was not me on a mission to find evidence that a plant-based diet is the right diet for gut health. This is that the evidence took me there. The evidence took me towards a plant-based diet. And um, so for me, my references, you know, I have 600 references in my book, completely transparent. You can have them for free on my website and you can check them and read them and, and look at the exact same stuff that I've been looking at. And the, the bottom line is that when you look at the weight of the evidence when it comes to gut health, the most important thing is the connection between our microbes and fiber. And there are studies on a number of different levels that support that, that fiber, the way it works, goes in the mouth, passes through the intestine, and it enters into the colon. And when it gets there, the microbes in the gut get into a feeding frenzy and they consume it. Fiber doesn't just pass through and come out the other end. 
Fiber is food for our bacteria. They consume it, they get stronger, and then they turn around and they reward you by releasing what are called short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids have healing effects throughout the entire body. They heal the colon, they heal the immune system, optimize the immune system. They're connected to reversing type 2 diabetes. They're connected to correcting uh, obesity. They are connected to our brain. They, they actually cross the blood-brain barrier. So they are actually quite incredible. Um, and I wrote an entire chapter about them in my book. And so, but the key is you don't get short-chain fatty acids or at least you will have very little short-chain fatty acids without consuming adequate amounts of fiber. And in the United States right now, 97% of people are not even getting enough fiber. So I see this issue where there's a fiber deficiency, and at the same time, I see people with progressively worsening digestive health, and I feel compelled to bring forward the evidence that shows us that there's this connection between fiber and your microbes that's critically important to the health of your microbiome. That's their food. It's it's truly fascinating to hear that. And, you know, I guess from the going back from your days of, you know, clinical research and, you know, the evidence-based, the scientific approach to deciphering what's noise and, and what's true, you know, I, I think that should be something more prevalent these days. And I, I hope that more people can you know, tap into that and use your resources on your website, you know, especially in times like this with COVID going on, right? There's so much uh, noise out there with that, with that discussion that uh, I think a lot of people could benefit from if they take it from that sort of an unbiased approach, just like you did. So, I mean, that's, that's incredible all in itself and the research you came up with to find out uh, the fiber deficiencies. And now one of the things we spoke on before the podcast was that the other doctors out there or some other doctors out there have been suggesting that whole grains and beans are inflammatory foods and that, you know, beans contain lectin that should be avoided and, and things like that. Right. And right. now I, I avoided beans myself for a while there actually, because uh, they came up inflammatory on an IgG food sensitivity test. And sure. uh, now, I mean, I've heard that there's a lot of inaccuracies in the IgG food sensitivity testing. And then reading into your insight a little bit more, uh, that's a little bit kind of far off from the truth, I guess, right? So can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So, you know, the uh, first talking about the IgG food sensitivity test. So this is, this is a blood test looking for antibodies. And when you're looking for antibodies, basically what you're doing is you're, you're paying attention to the immune system. But the problem is that we have multiple studies that have shown us that a person will have a positive IgG antibody test and they'll say, hold on, like I eat that food all the time. I feel totally fine. There's no issue. Or the flip side may be true where a person will have a negative IgG antibody test and they'll go, wait, that's kind of weird because when I eat that food, I feel absolutely horrible. So how do you explain the inconsistencies with the blood test? And, the, and the, the answer is that it's probably not ideal to be checking a blood test to understand food sensitivity when most food sensitivity is driven by damage to the gut microbiome. And the blood test has nothing to do with the gut microbiome. So truly, you know, when people have food sensitivity, it, it typically comes back to the fact that our gut microbes, we rely on them to process and unpack our food. You know, there's these enzymes that I talk about a little bit in the book that are called glycoside hydrolases. Glycoside hydrolases are intended for us to basically unpack 
you know, fiber or polysaccharides or starches. Us humans in our entire like huge size and our digestive system, we only have 17 of those glycoside hydrolases. That is a pathetically small number. Some of these bacteria that are a single cell, they're a single cellular organism, have hundreds, they have hundreds of glycoside hydrolases. And when they study the gut, they've estimated that a healthy gut microbiome could have 60,000 unique enzymes designed to break down and process these foods. The problem comes in when there's damage to the gut. So a person that has, you know, dysbiosis, which is the word that we use for damage to the gut, which is associated with ulcerative colitis or is associated with irritable bowel syndrome. These are the people who have food sensitivities. And the reason that they have food sensitivity is because of the damage to their gut and the fact that they're probably missing some of the enzymes necessary to process and digest. The challenge with lectins, you know, or some of these other um, parts of the food that we have been told are inflammatory and bad for us. The problem is that, and it comes back to the idea of using the um, scientific method, which is that there's a hierarchy to evidence. And what I mean by that is that anytime that we do a mouse study, I alluded to this earlier, anytime we do a mouse study, we should always confirm that in humans. You should never take it at face value. Anytime we do a test tube study, we should always confirm that in humans. These preclinical studies are not adequate. And we have seen far too many times that something that you find in a mouse or something that you find in a test tube simply does not translate when you apply that to real humans doing real things. So the, the, the problem is we have conflicting evidence of this, of this type. Lectins in a test tube look like they're problematic. All right. Now, to be fair, I don't know if you've heard this, the alternative side to the story, which wasn't shared in the popular book, but lectins also have anti-cancer properties, which are beneficial. There's, there's multiple different types of cancer, which are thought to be prevented by lectins. And cancer is the number two cause of death in the United States. But the, the problem that we have with lectins is that you, you see these test tube studies where it, you know, there's a high concentration of a lectin combined with human cells. They shake it up and it looks like it's a problem. But then you take the food and you have a real people eat the food and you look at what happens to these people when they eat beans and they eat whole grains and we find that they live longer with less heart disease and with less cancer. And then you look at their microbiome because the theory is that lectins are bad for the microbiome or lectins are bad for the gut. And once again, you find that the people who eat these foods have healthier, a healthier microbiome because they're high in fiber and they're high in resistant starch. And those are the things that feed the gut microbiome. The people who struggle with these foods, it's not inflammation. That's the key. The people who struggle with these foods, it's sloppy digestion. It's because they have a damaged gut and they need to adapt their gut to these foods to make it stronger. Because I think that your listeners will appreciate this. The gut is like a muscle. It can be trained. It can be made stronger. It can be adapted. But you have to put it through the process in order to do that. 
If a runner stops running and becomes sedentary, they can't wake up the next, you know, they can't wake up one day and go run a marathon. You have to build up towards that marathon. You have to build up your muscle and your endurance over the course of time to get there. The same is true with the gut. A person who has ulcerative colitis or has irritable bowel syndrome, that's a person who has a damaged gut. That's not a person who's a like trained athlete. This is more like someone who's going through rehab. You're not trying to run 10 miles. You're the person who's at physical therapy just trying to walk. And you have to build that up to get yourself to the point that you can start running again. So that's the key with the gut is when we introduce these foods, you need to adapt your gut to these foods. But if you've had a damaged gut, beans and whole grains may be difficult in the beginning for you to consume. And you have to rehab your gut by introducing them slowly over the course of time and building up until you get yourself to a point where you can tolerate them better. Awesome. No, I, I love to hear that. I'm glad you clarified that on whole grains and, and beans per, per se, legumes. Like I think that's fantastic to hear. And I think a lot of people can benefit from that, especially if you're going down the plant-based approach, right? And now I, I don't like to harp too much on foods we should avoid because I, I know one of your messages out there are we should be focused on foods that we should eat rather than foods that we should be avoiding, right? That I think right. that makes it a little more easier for us to to comprehend and, and follow. Um, now, I guess just before I get off the, the topic on foods we should avoid, I just kind of want to quickly bring up, you know, these common outliers out there that I think have been getting a lot of headlight action. And that is, you know, gluten and dairy. Um, for people, just everyday people out there, are these things that people should be avoiding? Are there are there any bad foods out there we should be avoiding or is this very just case dependent? Well, I, I think so, you know, there's one thing that I think almost every nutrition oriented person agrees on, which is that processed foods are not good. I think that we can all agree that processed foods are bad for us. And in the United States, that's 60% of the American diet. So if we could get rid of that and replace it with something healthier, that's a major step in the right direction. When it comes to gluten, you know, like, let me ask you a question, Stephen. How many times in your life have you had like wheat that was unprocessed? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I have never in my entire life. And I doubt, I doubt anyone who's listened to this have, has really like consumed wheat that was unprocessed. It's always processed. Wheat is always processed food. And so most of the time it's, it is, you know, part of what we're describing as these like ultra refined, ultra processed foods that aren't necessarily good for us. The, the I think the issue is, is there a place where selected wheat products are actually good for us when consumed in moderation. And the answer to the question, it's a little bit complex in the sense that like, let me tell you something. When I, when I got to this section in the book, this is chapter five, chapter five is how to find your plant passion with a sensitive gut. And when I got to the section on gluten, I actually stopped writing. This is the only time in the book that I did this. I stopped writing for several days and I just read. I just read articles because at the end of the day, I'm going to have to defend my position 
and I wanted to be sure that I really understood what I was stand, where I stood and what I was saying. So I read articles to try to understand what the story is. And the, the concern that I have is this. When we go gluten-free, I worry that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And the reason that I say that is that we have studies where they look at people who go gluten-free who do not have celiac disease. And when they do that, they increase their risk of heart disease. And the, the reason why is because whole wheat is the number one source of whole grains in the American diet. And so I'm not saying that we should eat these processed foods that are in boxes and packages in the middle of our store. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that I think that there's a place for sourdough. I think there's a place for Ezekiel bread. And if you, if you decide to go gluten-free, then I think that the right choice is to make sure that you are balancing out the loss of whole grains that you've just given up by increasing the consumption of the gluten-free whole grains like oats, quinoa, sorghum, teff, things like that. You have to make sure that you're getting an adequate amount in your diet because they're so important for both our microbiome and protecting us from heart disease. So that's gluten. I, I'm not, some, most people I don't think need to be gluten-free, to be honest with you. I just think that we need to consume it in moderation and it has to be high quality. With dairy, I personally don't see the advantages to the consumption of dairy. It's high in saturated fat. Saturated fat has been repeatedly shown in studies to cause damage to the gut microbiome. You know, in that regard, saturated fat, obviously you find it in other animal products. And complete transparency. You find it in coconut. So I, like, I am not a big fan of coconut oil or coconut milk. The studies consistently show that saturated fat causes damage to the gut microbiome. So if you're asking me, Stephen, where do I stand on things? What I would say to your listeners is this. Look, guys, I'm, I'm not here to try to make every person listening to this podcast go 100% whole food plant-based or become a vegan. I'm here to show you the science and I want to show you a path towards better gut health, but it has to meet you where you are. So no matter who you are, I'm trying to get you on a path towards better gut health and you're ultimately going to decide where you stand on things and how far you're willing to take that. For me personally, I was like 5% plant-based before I started all this. And I, it took me several years to make these changes. I didn't do it overnight. I didn't do it for ethical reasons. I didn't do it for environmental reasons. I do think those things have validity and you, you can look into them if you want to. But for me, it was always about my health. And then when I found the science, it was about the health of my patients. And for me, I, I drifted and drifted and drifted. And I was actually pescatarian for several years, meaning that I was eating fish and still having some eggs and dairy. And I was, I was about 205 at that point, and my high school weight was 190. And I decided to try getting rid of those things. And when I did, I, within a couple of weeks, within, I mean, probably, probably 10 weeks, I was back to my high school weight. And um, so this diet has worked incredibly well for me, but I'm also open to the possibility that not every person is going to move towards a 100% whole food plant-based diet. I just want to help to give you guys the tools that you need to optimize your gut health, however you choose to eat.
Hey, I just wanted to quickly interrupt this chat to let you know that by signing up to the Pace Racing monthly newsletter that you can receive exclusive listener posts to many of your favorite triathlon brands from triathlon apparel, nutrition, and fitness equipment videos, bike chases, treadmills, and so much more. So to jump on this, head to pacingandracing.com. And also with the season going virtual these days, I invite all of you to train and race with me virtually by giving me a quick follow on Strava or Swift by searching Steven Langenhausen. And lastly, if you are looking for some how-to videos or product tutorials, then be sure to check out Pacing Racing on YouTube. And of course, be sure to subscribe. All right, now, back to the show. That, that's absolutely perfect to hear. I, I'm glad you're touching base on all these because I want to make sure we cover grounds for all listeners here. And, you know, I guess just to beat some listeners to the punch here, some people who aren't on a plant-based diet, but like the idea of this and like where things are heading, uh, they might be concerned about things that they might be, uh, like what are the steps for them to take to get there safely, right? They, they don't want to be become deficient in things by cutting out what they're eating right now currently. So can people still get the adequate amounts of say protein, vitamin B12 or calcium, iron, other micronutrients like that uh, without missing out on some of these micronutrients that are important to us? You know, it's, it, I, I, I definitely understand where this question comes from. And actually I felt the exact same way. And when I started to transition, my dad would always ask me like, so Will, where are you getting your protein from? Mm-hmm. All right. So, and I, and I get it. I totally understand where this comes from. But what's interesting, Stephen, is when you actually start to dig into the data on this topic, it, this is where some of the surprises start to come in. So the, there's studies that they've looked at, you know, the, the nutritional completeness of multiple diets. And I described this a little bit later in the book. I know that you haven't really had a chance to read the whole thing. But there's a study where they, they described the nutritional adequacy of multiple diets. And they actually, they actually identified that the most complete nutritional diet was a completely plant-based diet. Now, that's not to say that it's a perfect diet. I don't know that there is such a thing as a perfect diet that gives you everything that you need and nothing that it shouldn't and that will make you live to 150 years old without disease. Like, I don't know that that exists. You know, we're all just trying to get to a better place. That's the bottom line. We want to live a long life. I mean, at least this is it for me. I want to live a long life and I want to be sharp when I'm 60, 70, and 80. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be burdened down by pills and procedures when I get past 50 years old. So that's what I'm hoping to get from out of the, from all of this. When it comes to, to the, some of those specific micronutrients that you're referring to, you know, I'll start with B12. B12 is the biggest, is the biggest flaw of a completely whole food plant-based diet. Okay. Um, but that being said, it's also a flaw of our modern life period because we don't live the way that we used to live, which is much more in tune to our environment, the soil. Um, and you know, for example, 200 years ago, you would, you would have a, uh, a farm and there would be dirt and you didn't necessarily have the ability to clean it off so much and scrub that plant the way that we currently do. B12 is produced by bacteria. That's where it comes from. All B12 comes from bacteria. And so when we get it, for example, from animal products, actually most of the animal products that have B12 today, it's because they're supplemented they're not very good at getting the B12 either because their environment has changed as well. And when they study B12 uh, in an, in an omnivorous, uh, omnivorous population, 
they find that close to 40% of people are still either B12 deficient or really darn close to B12 deficient. Supplementation of B12 is so easy. It's insane how easy it is. You'd be shocked at how little your body actually needs to be adequate. It's micrograms. And what you can do is get, I, I personally like to get methylcobalamin, which is a spray. And I just do the spray once a week. And whatever my body doesn't need, because it's a water-soluble vitamin, I just pee it out. But like literally once a week, I spray in the back of my mouth. That's it. I'm done. Takes care of my B12. So I, I personally don't view the B12 as being that big of a deal. And I frankly would make the argument that most of us should be doing B12 supplementation anyway. Protein deficiency is not a concern except in the extreme athlete, in which case it, they just need to adapt their diet slightly. When they study protein consumption by people of all dietary um, uh, philosophies in the United States, we all are way overshooting on, on protein. We're all overshooting. Vegans get 70% more protein than what they actually need. Now, you take the serious athlete and they may have more protein needs and that's a slightly different story. And so that person may need to adapt their diet. If hypothetically they were on a 100% whole food plant-based diet, they may need to incorporate more things like tempeh into their diet to get the high protein um, that they're shooting for. So I think that the important thing is this. Let me, let me I guess, take a step, step back for a moment and speak broadly about what it is that I think is critically important. Because the important thing is this. I, it's not even truly about veganism. You can consume a junk food vegan diet, and that's not a, that's not a healthy diet. And the person who's eating that way is not doing it because it's good nutrition. They're doing it because they believe in the ethics, you know? They believe in the environment and the animal welfare concerns. The, when they study the connection between our gut and fiber, which is ultimately bringing it back to what I really care about and what's important, what they discover is this. And this is, I mean, this is really the message that I want to get across to your listeners above all else. Because, because above all else, I, what I really want is I want to give you guys the tools necessary to have it, the healthiest gut possible. When they study the connection between fiber and our microbiome, what they have found, which is a little bit surprising, is that fiber is not just fiber. Different types of plants have different types of fiber. And so what that means is that the fiber that's in a bean is not the same as a fiber that's in, say, kale or something of that variety. Each type of fiber has unique biochemistry. Each type of fiber feeds unique populations of bacteria. So for example, you eat a black bean, there's specific types of bacteria, not all of them, specific types that will thrive because you eat that black bean. The opposite is also true. If you exclude the black bean from your diet, those types of bacteria will grow weaker and ultimately get to the point where they're not really existent anymore in your microbiome. And that is problematic because when you look at the health of the gut microbiome, all scientists agree diversity is the key. You want as many different species of microbes as humanly possible because each microbe brings unique skills to the table. And so what you want is you want a broad, diverse, balanced microbiome 
with all the different types of microbes possible so that they can support you, whatever your bodily needs may be. Your gut is a, um, your gut is an ecosystem in the same way that the Amazon rainforest is. And in any ecosystem, whether it's your gut or it's the rainforest, diversity is key to the stability of the ecosystem. And when you start to have extinctions of species, harm is done and the ecosystem becomes less stable. So all this is great. All this makes sense. Different plants have different fiber. Different fiber produces different microbes. But my book is not about a theory. My book is about science. And I wouldn't bring forward this idea if I didn't have science to back it up. The largest study to date to allow us to correlate the health of our gut microbiome with our diet and lifestyle is called the American Gut Project. And so this is actually an international project. It involves people from Canada as well as the U.S. as well as the U.K. and over 40 countries around the world. And um, when they did this analysis, what they discovered was that there was a clear-cut number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome. And that is the diversity of plants in your diet. The diversity of plants in your diet. Confirmation that a wide variety of plants with a wide variety of fiber translates into a diverse microbiome, which is a strong, resilient microbiome. So for th the reason I bring this up, Stephen, is that with these micronutrient deficiencies like iron, like calcium, I personally don't worry about these things in myself at all, at all. I don't do anything unique or special to try to chase them. Because what I do is I eat a wide variety, a wide diversity of plants. And when you do that, it takes care of itself because every single plant has unique protein. Every single plant has unique vitamins and minerals and micronutrients and phytochemicals and fiber. And when you combine this broad array, you get the strengths of all of them combining to basically give you the best nutritional adequacy possible. So from my perspective, I don't like, I don't, let me just say like for full disclosure in this study, diversity of plants was more important than veganism for the health of the gut microbiome. And that's because you can eat a vegan diet that's restricted in only a, a couple plants. And again, that's not that healthy. And a person who does a paleo diet and makes an, an emphasis on diversity of plants. It could be a very healthy diet, but I would argue it's much better when you include whole grains and legumes. It, it's astonishing to hear this, and I'm, I'm glad you really touched base on this and a wide variety of topics too. And I'm sure the listeners are probably really happy to hear all this and you know hear it right from a, a source that's backed by science and very data-driven. And I'm excited for everyone to kind of read it, read some more and listen into this book here. I know I started reading it as much as I could in this short amount of time, and I, I hope to finish it off here uh, very soon, as soon as I can, because it's it's fantastic book. And I know we're just scratching the surface as we talk about some of the stuff here. And you know what? We're pretty much uh, covered most of the topics I want to talk about, but, but there's a couple things I know a lot of people would love to hear right now. Uh, yeah. You know, I think they're one of the two couple hot trends out there right now, and I wanted to hear your take on them, is the bone broth and the celery juice. Now, from your clinical perspective, you know, what's your take on these? Are, are these proven? Are they effective or are they recommended, not recommended? What's your thoughts? <laughs> um, 
All right. So I don't I don't want to disappoint you or anyone else. I, I don't no, enjoy no. disappointing people. <laughs> but, you know, you're asking me, are they proven? Are they effective? And the answer is the only way that they could be proven would be with research. The only way that they could be known to be effective would be with research. And we don't have any studies. We don't have any studies with bone broth, not even one, not even one. And we don't have any studies with celery juice either. You know, what we have is, I mean, I think we all know where the celery juice comes from. It came from a book and it comes from a person who, you know, I, I, I don't have any way to prove or disprove this, but they claim that a spirit told them this. So I guess it's ultimately up to you to decide whether or not you believe that. Um, the way I feel about the celery juice, truly, is that I don't think you're hurting yourself when you do it, but you're, it's going to get old because it gets expensive real fast. You know, I mean, you could easily spend over a hundred bucks a month on celery juice and without any proven benefit, I honestly think you'd be better off eating the celery by itself because the celery has fiber. And I also think that a good glass of water could go a long way early in the morning. I personally, I'm a huge coffee drinker. I love coffee, mm -hmm. but I have actually noticed great benefit to waking up in the morning and drinking two glasses of water before I touch the coffee pot. Oh, there you go. Um, so that, that's the way that I feel about it. If you want to do it, I don't think you're hurting yourself, but I mean, you're going to get tired of spending $4 a day on celery and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and without any real truly proven benefit. Um, you know, when it comes to bone broth, I, I understand, like, I don't want to dismiss people who uh, the, the lay person who says, look, bone broth helped me. I, I certainly don't want to dismiss it. Um, and the reason why is because I, I think that there is something to be said for a warm, electrolyte-rich beverage and how soothing it is to your gut. And as you know, Stephen, the person who's suffering with digestive issues, they're just looking for relief. And I totally get that bone broth, you know, makes them feel more at ease and, and it soothes them. But I would make the argument that a vegetable broth would do the same thing just as good, if not better, because it has the polyphenols and antioxidants. I would make the argument that a miso broth would do the same thing, just as good, if not better. Again, it has polyphenols and the antioxidants. The concern with the bone broth itself is that collagen is not a proven commodity. We have, again, with collagen, we have no studies with the gut. We have none. And, you know, where I have concerns or issues is when I see experts bringing this forward. Because people are claiming expertise, but they don't have a study to back that up. How can you claim to be an expert? And you're, and, you're, and you're pushing something that you have zero studies for. And meanwhile, we have all these things, like for example, fiber, where we have hundreds, if not thousands of studies to support them, but you're not talking about that. That makes me really question your expertise. That really makes me question whether or not you follow the evidence. And so that's, that's where I take issue is not so much with the lay person. The lay person, it's not my, ex it's not my expectation that you know how to decipher all this. That's like me going to the mechanic. I, I know nothing about cars. I trust my mechanic, you know, but with the person who claims to be an expert and then pushes bone broth as the solution to gut health, we don't have any studies to support that. The only study that I've seen suggested that there's the potential for heavy metal toxicity because of the bones leaching heavy metals. You know what, honestly, I, so I'd love to hear that. And I myself, have, I've been on the celery juice, but you know, that's just it, right? At the end of the day, we, when we look at, our ways of differentiating and deciphering as a layperson, you know, what's, what's accurate, what's truthful out there. All you can do is hope, right? So <laughs> I mean, to hear it from someone like yourself, uh, who has the, 
the understanding of finding this data and this science and and research and, and deciphering it at, or lack thereof in these cases. I think that's perfect. I think uh, by no means are you attacking anyone individually or are you discrediting people. I think you're just opening up uh, in your stance on it as there's there's no proof in certain uh, things that people are bringing forward. So uh, I, I really appreciate to hear that. And I think that's awesome. I think a lot of people can respect that. So mm-hmm. um, awesome. And you know what, I guess uh, that's a perfect place to end things off here. You know, just to recap, we spoke on some plant-based, uh, plant based, uh, plant-based approach, I should say, sorry. And we talked about some probiotics and microbiome. Uh, we spoke on the bone broth and celery juice and some foods that we may have been avoiding or may not have been avoiding, but something to think about things like gluten and dairy and stuff like that. Um, are there any other important topics you think you'd like to highlight in terms of endurance athletes out there that might optimize their gut health? Yeah. I th- so uh, I, I guess there's two things. There's two things that I want to mention real quick. So first, let me say that there are ways to optimize your gut that have nothing to do with food. And so what I'm talking about is your lifestyle. It's important as an endurance athlete to number one, make sure that you're getting adequate amounts of rest. To me, that's at least eight hours of sleep per night. And it needs to be priority. It's too important. The second part with that, you know, along the same lines is the timing of your rest and your circadian rhythm. You know, you want to the best of your ability to have an early dinner. And then you want to make sure that you're not snacking late at night and you're having a reasonably early bedtime. I mean, I'm talking to guys, you know, I'm under the assumption here that I'm talking to guys who you're very serious about your craft to the point of almost being a perfectionist. And if that's the case and you're looking for that added edge, this is the kind of stuff that you need to be doing, which is tapping into your circadian biology, making sure that you're getting a good night's rest. So timing becomes becomes everything. Early dinner no food after dinner, just water fasting, go to bed early if you can. By early, I'm referring to like 9.30, 10, 10 something like that, not staying up till midnight. And then getting your eight hours of sleep at least. And then you wake up in the morning. And at that point, if you've done this properly, you've been fasting for at least 12 hours. And there's benefit of that to the gut microbiome as well. So that's a sequence that you guys can do that may be beneficial. The second thing I wanted to say real quick is just to bring things full circle. So Very early on in the podcast, we talked about the exciting study where they found this one strain of bacteria called Velenella. This Velenella was the one that they put into mice and saw that the mouse that got Velenella had a 13% boost in its performance on an exercise task. And they discovered that this breaks down lactate. Well, let me tell you something kind of cool. So Velenella, what it does is it breaks down lactate and it transforms it into propionate. Propionate is a short-chain fatty acid. I mentioned short-chain fatty acids earlier because the way that you get short-chain fatty acids is when fiber meets your gut microbiome. We said before that fiber is food for your gut microbes. They consume it, they get stronger, and then they pay you back by releasing short-chain fatty acids. So the point from my perspective that I find to be fascinating is that when you consume fiber in your diet, you your gut microbes will reward you with short-chain fatty acids. When you exercise, once again, your gut microbes will reward you with short-chain fatty acids. These signs are suggesting to me that the currency of health within the gut 
are short chain fatty acids. We want to get more of them. And this is where there's, I believe, the benefit of optimizing and synergizing between your diet, making sure you're getting adequate amounts of fiber and your exercise so that you can really get the short chain fatty acids humming in your favor. So I just thought that that was an interesting thing that, that um, your listeners would enjoy. Yeah, totally. Uh, that's absolutely incredible. I, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time here. I know, you know, as we're just talking about sleep here, I, I know I'm taking away some of your crucial sleep. <laughs> it's 10 p.m. here, but, uh, you know, we can't thank you enough. I think this is, will go a long way in helping some people out. And, you know, to all who want to grab a copy of this book, it's, uh, you know, coming out here next couple of days. So it'll be available as May 12th, right? So how can some listeners uh, get some insight on this book and how can they get one in their hands? Yeah, so... Um... I'm excited about the book. I can't wait for you know you guys to check it out. Many of the concepts we've talked about in the show are in the book, but obviously we're taking a deeper dive and it allows me, you know, for example, with gluten and lectins to really unpack it the way that I want to. And um, so the book is called Fiber Fueled. You can order it if you live in the US or Canada, you can order it from all your traditional avenues, whether that be Amazon or in the US Barnes and Noble. But I'll be honest with you, Stephen, you know, with COVID-19 and everything that's happening, I would actually encourage your listeners, if you're going to get my book, it's worth it to make, to get, put in the extra effort to call your local bookstore because they're a small business. They're a part of your community. Amazon is only getting stronger, but many of the small businesses that live in our communities are really hurting right now. And this is a great way to help to take care of your local bookstore so that when COVID-19 is gone, hopefully they're still open so that on a rainy day, you can go have a cup of coffee and flip through some books. So I would really encourage you guys to do that. I also, I enjoy hearing uh, from people. I enjoy connecting with people. If you want to connect with me, come find me on Instagram as the Gut Health MD, on Facebook as the Gut Health MD. I'm happy to continue the conversation, to answer questions. And um, you can find my website, theplantfedgut.com. I have my research guide that I alluded to earlier. I have a COVID-19 guide and I have a robust email list that I think you guys would probably enjoy. So, and I, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, absolutely. The pleasure has been all mine here. It's been super inspiring and informative to chat with you here today. So honestly, all the best, man. Stay safe, stay healthy. And thanks again. Appreciate that. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. And, and uh, wish you and all your listeners well also as we uh, navigate this COVID-19 crisis. Excellent. Take care, man. All right. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap with Dr. Bolsowitz. Thank you so much for listening in, guys. And if you enjoyed this episode, among others, then please just take the time to open up your Apple Podcast app on your iPhone, search Pacing Racing, be sure to subscribe, and then scroll down to the bottom and just leave us a quick written review. It takes less than a minute to do, but it goes a long way in helping me out. So to all who do that, thanks so much. It's highly appreciated. And other than that, guys, happy training. And if you want to train with me on Zwift or Strava, then drop me a follow by searching Steven Langhausen. Anyway, take care, guys. Chat soon. Cheers. Cheers.